Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I don't try to dance around anything. And in my opinion, if somebody's going to try to dance around the question and not really answer it straight, it probably means there's something to hide there. And if that's the case, I don't really want to be in business if somebody can't just come out and be very honest with me about what their role is. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Andrew Brewer. Andrew is joining us from Austin, Texas. He is a real estate developer at Corelia Properties, LLC, where he develops multifamily, townhomes, and single-family subdivisions. Andrew's portfolio consists of an assortment of properties throughout Texas. Andrew, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Andrew, if you would, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, for sure. So I have a degree in history and anthropology, was a double major in college. Of course, that had so much applicability to real estate. After I graduated college and my first professional position out of college was as a stationary engineer. For those of you listening that don't know what that is, it it doesn't actually have to do with creating new types of paper. It's a stationary engineer in relation to something that is stationary, like a building as opposed to marine engineering, like large ships, battleships, transport barges, things like that had things like boilers and whole infrastructures and systems inside them that keep everything moving, provide power to move the ships, electricity, pumping water, purifying stuff, and just all that kind of stuff. Large buildings have that as well. All those same systems, it's just they don't move, they're stationary. So I worked in large commercial facilities in the Bay Area in California, which is where uh, I grew up. So the last facility I was working at was a $200 million facility, consists of 197 residential units, eight ground floor commercial spaces. So it was a a high rise, 27 stories, was an entire city block. So I was in charge of that facility. I started there as a utility engineer, worked my way up to being 
the assistant chief engineer of the entire facility. Also, while I was working as a stationary engineer, I worked as a consultant on construction defect litigation lawsuits. So facilities that I worked in, if for some reason building wasn't built to specifications or it's thought that maybe it wasn't, there can be a lawsuit involved where either the residents, in my case, the building I was working in was managed by an HOA. So in this case, it was the HOA on behalf of the residents suing the original builder or an owner after a period of time. You start to see issues with the building that should not be occurring quite so quickly. Obviously, older buildings have maintenance issues after 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, but there's a 10-year window for construction defect because generally the issues that would be coming up with construction defects should not be presenting within 10 years. So if they are, you can go and sue for that. So worked as a consultant there as well. And then after finishing up lawsuits there, did reconstruction on facilities. So worked as a project manager also in reconstruction projects. So that gave me a, a really good baseline into the back end of how construction works, construction defect, what goes into managing large facilities as a stationary engineer. I was involved in maintaining all of that large equipment, boilers, generators, HVAC units, electrical, plumbing, all that kind of stuff that goes into a large building. And also getting a background look into what large-scale asset management looks like, having to coordinate with property management, residents, and just got a lot of hands-on experience there. At the same time that I was doing that as my W-2 position, I had always been interested in real estate investing. Got turned on to that by my wife when I was in college. So we started using our money to buy properties of our own. So I was purchasing single families and small multifamilies in Kansas City investing out of state and just kind of realized that that wasn't for me. I never lost money or anything, but it was more work than I anticipated. It was hard to juggle that with my full-time job, especially being out of state and being so early in my career that I wasn't making a crazy amount of money at my W-2 and I didn't have a lot of vacation or benefits. So I did that for a while, but then just with a lot of encouragement through my wife decided, why don't I put these two skill sets together? Like I have the knowledge from operating a large asset, but then I also have this knowledge as an investor and someone that's bought my own properties. I understand what an owner or investor wants to see and what metrics they're looking at when purchasing a property. So I just put those two together. I moved out to Austin, Texas, and I began developing properties out here and acquiring properties here. That's still what I'm doing today. Did you start out in development or purchasing existing properties? I started purchasing existing properties. So that's what I was doing in Kansas City. I liquidated that portfolio in order to reinvest in Texas. Because I had invested out of state in Kansas City and realized that wasn't something that I really wanted to do, I liquidated that portfolio. And when I moved to Texas, I was like, I'm going to invest here in my own backyard. As of right now, I pretty much primarily invest in Austin and San Antonio. I live in Austin, San Antonio is about a two hour drive and they're both very large markets with ample opportunities. So that's where I invest now. When I got here in Austin, I actually started my career in Austin by developing properties. I have a development partner I connected with. He grew up building spec homes with his parents. His parents have a spec home building company and they had done some land subdivision. So he had the knowledge on real ground up development and subdivision, although on a much smaller scale. And then I had the experience of 
redevelopment and large scale project management on a more commercial scale. So we are able to put our two skill sets together to develop larger properties. So at this point, what we develop, whether it's single family, townhomes or multifamily, will be larger projects, generally in the $20 million plus range, apartments and townhomes, subdivision, maybe the five to $15 million range, generally 80, 80 to 100 units are up. So we have projects that are 100 units, 330 units, 125 units, things of that scale now is what we're doing. Andrew, you mentioned that you weren't making a lot of money. Where did the money come from for your portfolio in Kansas City? The capital for my projects was a combination of my own equity, and then I also raised equity. So my wife and I lived very frugally. We shared rooms, rented rooms, ate beans and rice, three meals a day for years to save up a good chunk of our own capital. And that's what we invested in Kansas City with. We did not have outside investors for our properties in Kansas City. Granted, they were much cheaper properties. Once we started developing these larger projects here in Austin, we had a bit of a track record already, and we started raising some capital for that. We continue to do that. We either syndicate or JV the large deals that we do. Tell me about the first time you raised capital. The first time I raised capital, my partner and I, we, we found a deal. We went out, put it under contract. It was a little scary for us. It was a much bigger project than we had done before, but we felt confident in our skill set. So we decided to pull the trigger and go for it. We knew that we didn't have the capital to take it down or the experience, and we were going to need to partner with a more experienced group. So we did some research there and identified a, a group that we thought was going to be a good fit here in Austin. It was a group I had actually passively invested with before. So we put the deal under contract, did our due diligence, and our research, put together our pitch deck, went out to lunch with them, kind of nervous going into that lunch meeting. I was really trying to impress them and they grilled me about stuff. Thankfully, I was prepared for that. And they went, talked about it, came back and said, no, we'd actually love to partner on this deal with you. And so that got our foot in the door. There's that law, the first deal. I feel like that really played out in this deal. So they came onto the team with us. And we went out and we raised capital together and we're kind of off and running that way. So that was how we raised for that first deal. Andrew, over the past few years, you saw asset prices, multifamily in particular, climb very high to the point where you can buy used properties for more than what it would cost to build. And now that that pendulum has shifted, there's a lot of development going on. There's this new trend of build to rent where the investors end up purchasing a single family home, a town home that is essentially turnkey. It's managed by the developer or the property manager. So it's a passive investment and you get to play landlord as a passive investor. What are your thoughts on that? And are you doing anything to capitalize on the build to rent trend? I'm not really doing anything in the build to rent space. I found it difficult to make those deals pencil, at least here in Austin, San Antonio. Land prices are really high in Austin. They have better deals now, but for the last few years, it's been really, really hot here in Austin and hard to get the numbers to work because you get lower density on a build to rent project. So I, I haven't really done much in that space. I, I've been sticking more to higher density stuff like multifamily and townhomes. You are in one of the most sought after real estate areas in the country. How do you maintain a competitive edge? 
I maintain a competitive edge by being pretty hyper-local in the projects that I target. Austin's pretty hot, but like any market, there are hotter spots and not quite so hot spots. And real estate's very hyper-local, to quote another big syndicator in the space. So I'm very careful about the sub-market that I'm in and making sure that I'm only investing into growing sub-markets. If you're familiar with the Austin area at all, there's downtown Austin, then there's a lot of smaller markets around that, places like Round Rock, Leander, Cedar Park, Pflugerville, Manor, like all these little towns that are also seeing a lot of growth. Some of them are commuter communities into Austin. Some of them have strong job centers like Taylor and Round Rock have a lot of jobs there. So those are good places to invest in that are within the Austin MSA, but they're not in Austin. So I look for markets like that, where there are a lot of jobs coming in, there's a need for housing, maybe there's some constriction. Texas is historically very development friendly, but it's changing in some parts of Austin. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. If it gets less development friendly, then there's more supply and demand imbalance. So those can be good areas to target if you can get something through. So really it's looking to the sub-market and making sure that that submarket is not being overbuilt. There are some submarkets in Austin where they just have so many projects that have been approved that it's going to be hard to fill them all. Whereas in other submarkets, you're seeing not enough. So it's just being very careful about what's going in and where. How do you find your land acquisitions? I find land through brokers or just through my network. I have brokers bring me deals and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I also just have a larger network here in Austin that I've built over the last four years or so of either people that have land or know somebody that does. People also know me as a developer at this point, and there's less people in development than there are in multifamily acquisitions, for instance. So for a lot of people, when they get a lead for development, and that's not really their niche, whether like a flipper or multifamily guy, they send it to me either to partner or to wholesale it or something. And I'll take a look from there. And that's really where I get a lot of my leads from is referrals or people sending me properties that they don't quite know what to do with. Andrew, let's demystify development for our best ever listeners. You find a piece of land, you get it under contract. Can you walk us through that high level process? How much due diligence time do you put on this contract before any of your money goes hard? My ideal contract would be four to five months of due diligence with two months to close. So I'm generally looking for, I would say at minimum, 120 days of due diligence, 60 days to close. And then I like to try to put in a couple extensions there. So maybe 120 days of DD with a 30-day extension on DD, and then 60 days to close with a 30-day extension on closing. And I do that because there's a lot more or the due diligence takes a lot longer. You've got to get a number of third-party reports, things like a geotech study, a phase one, possibly like an endangered species report. You've got to get utility maps. You've got to do concept site plans, make sure that you can get the density that you need. You've got to meet with the city at least once or twice. So there's a lot of steps that you have to take. I'm not a big fan of taking those steps all at once because they all cost a lot of money. So if any of those things don't pan out. Like if you've just gone out and spent three grand for this, five grand for this, 10 grand for that, and two grand for that, all of this money up front, and one of those things doesn't work out, then you're out all of that money. So I I tend to do things in steps. I'll say like, well, 
I think the biggest hurdle here is going to be dealing with the city, or I'm afraid there might be an environmental issue. So I'll address the highest risk factor, in my opinion, first on that specific deal. And each one of those things can take some time. It could take three weeks to get an environmental study. It could take three weeks to get a geotech. It could take a month for your engineers to turn around a concept site plan. It could take a month or two for you to get a meeting with the city. So there's just a lot of lead time that you need and due diligence. And that's why I ask for that 120 days with an extension. I generally pay an option fee up front. That might be, depending on the contract price, a couple thousand bucks. And then earnest money is generally about 1%. That does not go hard until after the due diligence period. And the due diligence extension I get, generally I'll pay a little bit more of the option fee, like maybe another thousand bucks for that due diligence extension. And then that will extend due diligence out. Once that's over, then earnest money is hard, but it's typically been four to five months. If I can't get it figured out in four to five months, I'll just drop the contract, be out two, three grand plus whatever I've spent in DD. And that's just cost of doing business. It costs money to do it right, really. So I build that in. That's the risk capital. I put up the risk capital myself before I start bringing in investors. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's very helpful. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money ensure your offerings comply with security laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents. In terms of dealing with the city, I'm assuming you want to build as much as dense as you can. Do you often get pushback from them or do you often find land that's already zoned multifamily? I've done straight raw land. I've also done land that's zoned for multifamily. In terms of density, I'm often looking to maximize density, but I'll say that it depends on the kind of project you're putting in. If you're trying to put in a project where maybe you're going to sell for a bit more per unit, where you're targeting a different client base, you might not necessarily want things to be like the most dense that you can get because it'll drive your price down if that's not the market you're in. So that's a consideration. Really, I don't find that I get a lot of pushback from the city, but that's because I'm very targeted in where I'm going. So I don't ever try to go against the city. If the city has an issue with whatever project I'm putting in, I'm not going to fight them on it. If I go to the city and they're like, I know you want to build 20 units per acre of multifamily here. We don't want multifamily here. I'll just say, that's fine. No problem. I'll drop the contract and go look somewhere else. I'm not trying to go to war with the city. All cities have a future land use plan that you can generally find through calling their development department. And that'll tell you what the city wants to see where. So if you just follow that, generally, you don't hit a crazy amount of pushback. Yeah, I'm not an advocate of going to battle with city leadership. However, do you 
not try to push for a variance or get to know some of the politicians in that area. You're hyper-local, so I'm imagining you're in just a handful of municipalities. Do you try to build relationships with them and try to see how far you could push? Kind of. I do build relationships with the city, and I do have a lot of projects that have variances on them, but the overall project has to align with the city. I haven't really seen a city that's going to change its entire land use plan just to put in whatever project I want to put in there. So when I'm requesting a variance or trying to get something that's a little bit out of scope, it's still aligning overall. The city's future land use plan doesn't say, I want this exact project. It just says, I want multifamily in this area and I want commercial in that area and I want some kind of transition thing in between or something like that. So as long as I'm conforming to that, I'll ask for variances around the specific development requirements, but make sure that the project overall fits. So maybe it's like the city says they want multifamily here. I'm going to put a multifamily project here. I'm not trying to put retail there or something. So it conforms to the land use plan, but maybe there's a code in the city or something that says you can only get 20 units per acre or something. Maybe I'm trying to target 22 or 24, and I try to come up with something around that by like, maybe instead of just doing straight multifamily zoning, I'm going to do a PUD, which will give the city a little bit more control over what I'm going to build. But at the end of the day, it's still a multifamily project. So it's still conforming to the overall plan. And that's typically a lot easier to get because when you go to planning and zoning and city council vote, whoever it is that you're working with doesn't have to go in there and say, we're trying to approve something that's completely outside of what's in the plan. We're approving something that fits in the box, but there's just maybe a little bit of wiggle room in there. So I found that's kind of the way to do it. Because at the end of the day, people voting out are city council members and they don't know anything about development and they get in and out like every year. So hard to develop a relationship there with somebody that's just going to get voted out in a year. Yeah. A side note, best ever listeners, anywhere we have more than one property, or even sometimes if we have a larger property, we'll donate to any city council person that's running for re-election. I don't care what side they're on. If they've got an election coming up and it doesn't take a lot of money, $500,000, and you will get their attention. I think it helps. I think if you've got a fair amount of property in one particular municipality, get to know the politicians. It certainly helped us quite a bit in the past. Andrew, once you've got the property under contract, what are the next steps? Once the property is under contract, I dive headlong into due diligence. Generally, at the same time, I will also start putting out soft feelers to my capital partners and my larger team that I do the deal with and just kind of let them know. I got this deal under contract. It has passed the initial smell test. I think we can do something here. I'm doing the due diligence right now. If this is something that you're interested in, let me know. I'll start taking soft commitments and frame it along the lines of, if it were to be this thing, would you be interested? And then once I get through due diligence and have that pitch deck built out and everything, then I'll go in for like a hard commitment. This is now what it is. I have the firm numbers. I've done all the due diligence. I've got the firm underwriting. We've got lending lined up. Let's start working towards getting capital in and closing. Typically, the last 90 days or so of the project are doing that, getting that capital in, getting legal docs drafted, 
and working towards closing, closing out financing if we have it. And then we close. And by the time we close, I aim to have basically the entire project modeled out to where we're not planning the project anymore. We're simply executing a list of tasks that we've done ahead of time. So by the time we close, we're just starting to check off boxes and going through the process. Andrew, what's the hardest lesson you've learned in all of your real estate development career? Hardest lesson I've learned has been make sure that you are very careful with who you partner with and make sure that the people you partner with can actually deliver on what they say they can do. I had a partnership very early on that kind of went south. It was a development deal. Thankfully, it was all my own money, did not lose any investor funds, but learned a lot there. Can't just trust anybody. People will really puff themselves up. Even if they seem to have a track record, you don't always know how true it is or what part they played in making those properties on their track record a success. So just be very careful there who you partner with. Really vet your partners very carefully and always underwrite everything at market price was the other thing that I've learned. You have a partner that comes in and says, oh, I have a contracting company. I can do this for way cheaper than so-and-so. If they can't do it and you're relying on that discount in order to make the numbers work, and you have to exit that partnership or bring in somebody else and you don't have the budget for it, you can be in trouble really quick. So just be very careful about your numbers and who you partner with there. Is there a good tip to qualify a potential partner? What I like to do is I'm just very blunt. Somebody sends me their track record or whatever. I'll just straight up get on a call with them and just say, I see you have these properties in your portfolio. What exactly did you do on this? What exactly were you responsible for? And I just really try to hammer on them and get them to be very open. I know all the double speak at this point, people saying, oh, I have all these assets under management, but I just kind of go straight in like, oh, that's great. Well, okay. You've got all of these assets under management. Well, what do you do on those assets? What are you responsible for? How much of these deals do you own? Did you find the deal? Are you managing the deal? Or did you just raise some capital? What is your role? That's generally what I do is I'm just very, very upfront and blunt with my line of questioning. I don't try to dance around anything. And in my opinion, if somebody's going to try to dance around the question and not really answer it straight, it probably means there's something to hide there. And if that's the case, I don't really want to be in business. If somebody can't just come out and be very honest with me about what their role is, even if it's not a big role or something like that, just tell me what it is up front. And I strive to do the same thing when people ask me. You shared some very valuable advice. I've been there myself and it's so great having a partner, somebody to share tasks with, somebody to bounce ideas back and forth with. And a lot of times we become enamored by a potential partnership that we fail to ask those questions until we learn those hard lessons. So thank you for sharing that. Andrew, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, for sure. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read? Best ever book I recently read was Michael Collins by Tim Pat Coogan. It's a biography of Michael Collins. He was an Irish revolutionary hero. Um, pretty interested learning how he built out his organization. Not exactly business per se, but a good case lesson in building an organization and everything he had to do there. So very interesting. Not real estate related, but still a good read. Andrew, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back just by talking to people, giving advice, connecting with people, 
I had some people that gave me advice early on in my career and I like to try to pay it forward. That's just my opinion and my experience. I don't claim to know everything, but I love trying to help people when they're having a problem, if there's a way that I can. Andrew, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Yeah, if people want to get in touch with me, they can find me on Facebook or on LinkedIn, or they can visit my websites. You can go to www.irongallinvestments.com or www.distance, the number three development.com. And you can reach me at either of my emails, either Andrew at irongallinvestments.com or Andrew at distance3development.com. Andrew, you've got an amazing story. I thank you for sharing some of your experience with us. I've got to ask you, when you graduated with your history and anthropology degree, did you have plans on pursuing that line of work? I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. I really love history and anthropology, so that's what I studied. But I didn't really have any intention of ever going into those fields. I discovered real estate investing when I was in college and had always wanted to do that, see if I could figure out a way to do that in no small part because of my wife's encouragement. But yeah, didn't really ever plan on becoming an anthropologist or a historian. Just, I love history and anthropology. So that's what I did. Study what you love, right? Listen, you did a great job pivoting. You've had a great career. So thank you again for sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Happy to be here. Happy to share. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.